And this is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Scott Kim, in for Catherine Cruz. Residents in the Pearl Harbor area have returned to their homes after their tap water was deemed safe by the state. But the fuel contamination crisis surrounding the Red Hill bulk fuel storage facility continues to reverberate throughout the community. From concerns over the possible migration of jet fuel into the island's aquifer to water shortages as a result of closed wells and a less-than-rainy rainy season to a potential slowdown in new construction as a result of said water shortages, this story is far from over. The Board of Water Supply has launched a series of public service announcements to urge residents to conserve water. We spoke with the Board of Water Supply's manager and chief engineer, Ernie Lau, to get an update on the situation. We initially, I think, saw a slight decrease, but I think the lack of rainfall has kind of masked the people's efforts to save water. So we still see water demand increasing. Across the island, it's right now higher than it was this same time last year and higher than the five-year monthly average. Okay, and so now as we're approaching the end of April, we're well into the dry season. And uh, while we've seen some rain in the past few weeks, it's still well below what we would normally see. How dire is our situation from the board's point of view? Uh, You know, just to remember um, the situation we're in right now with the uh, contamination of the aquifer uh, because of the uh, fuel leaks at the Red Navy's Red Hill facility, uh, we've had to shut down three wells. Uh, and for the Honolulu water system, that's about uh, 20% of our supplies now offline with the shutdown of Halava shaft. Uh, and for the Aiea Halava water system, it's about 50% of the supply there with Aiea wells and Halava wells shut down. Uh, so we're, we're in a pretty, uh, very dire, uh, challenging situation. Uh, and that's why in early March, we issued the call for voluntary conservation's targeting uh, a 10% reduction in water use, not only from our residential customers, but from all our customers in uh, in these systems. And because of the low normal rainfall, we really need our, everybody's help on this island uh, to save water. Can you give us a status update on the situation regarding those uh, wells that were shut down? Are you continually evaluating the possibility of those wells going back into use, or is that sort of just a, they're completely shut down now until you further determine whether any migration of the fuel from Red Hill has uh, gone into the aquifer as a whole? Uh, we, we know that the uh, uh, the aquifer below the fuel tanks and near the fuel tanks and up to about a half a mile away where the Navy's drinking water source was contaminated with fuel and still is, a Red Hill shaft, that the aquifer is contaminated. And it's the same aquifer that we pump on, pump from on the opposite side of Halava Valley. Uh, so we still remain cons- very concerned that if we uh, turn on the three uh, wells that we have shut down, that uh, there could be even a remote possibility that we pump uh, fuel-contaminated water into the bigger Honolulu water system and the Aia Halava system, uh, which together serve over uh, 400,000 people uh, on this island. So. Uh, until we are, are very sure that uh, there's no chance of that happening, uh, we can't really risk that, uh, turning them on. Rainfall has, you know, just going back uh, back to the conservation question, um, it's important that we all realize that this precious by this uh, pure groundwater uh, from these underground aquifers, that we treat it as a gift, and we only use what we need and don't waste it. And during these times, it's it's even more challenging situation, dire situation because of the, 
the three wells shut off. So we need everybody's cool. Uh, government customers, commercial business, uh, visitors, visitor industry customers, uh, residential customers, uh, everybody served by the Board of Water Supply. Uh, we ask you to reduce your water use. And I know it's difficult to judge exactly uh, whether how much that message is sinking in, but anecdotally, what are you hearing from customers, from businesses, as to whether the realization has set in that um, because of certain situations like the lack of rainfall and the Red Hill fuel leak, that uh, it really is a critical situation now and, and people need to conserve? You know, uh, anecdotally, we, we've gotten feedback on uh, people, um, you know, residential customers, you know, some of the tips that they've suggested to us, really great ideas on how they're saving water. Uh, you know, like when you're going to take a bath and you're waiting for the water to heat up your hot water, uh, rather than just sending that down into the drain uh, wasted, somebody, you know, suggested uh, using a bucket uh, to capture that water to, you know, you can use that water to water your plants or flush your flush your toilet. So that's a great idea. Another idea uh, has come from, you know, some of our um, our business customers, you know, that uh, talk about if they want to develop something, they're looking at actually seeing if they can do it uh, using less water than uh, what the property currently uses right now. And that's amazing. And, you know, when we heard about that, we were just super impressed with, with their uh, out-of-the-box thinking, their willingness to um, to be uh, as water efficient as possible and even to uh, fit a new development with uh, more units in less uh, less water uh, footprint. Uh, so that was, that was a great story. Uh, we look forward to working with them. So Scott, I think there's some success stories here. Uh, we just got word that the, uh, the city that will be shutting down two of their uh, fountains uh, at, at Honolulu Hale and the, uh, the net fisherman fountain right in the on the intersection of Kapiolani and uh, King Street. Uh, so that's you know, another example of the, of the city uh, stepping up uh, to demonstrate leadership in this issue. Uh, Ernie, at what point and under what circumstances uh, would the board call for mandatory restrictions on water use? Is that under discussion now? And would you say the possibility is is growing? The big variables, when you think about water usage, uh, subject to these uh, variables that affect how much water people use. Uh, the, the biggest variable is, that's out of our control is weather. Uh, so uh, like right now, the first uh, three months of the year, uh, it's been, uh, January was uh, about normal uh, rainfall, but uh, February and March, you know, February was about 51% of normal. March was about 46% of normal. Uh, so rain, Rain uh, or weather actually drives water use, so that's an unknown. Uh, but we have areas that we can control. That's how much we use, how much we uh, um, use uh, daily in our lives uh, to be able to survive with water. We really need people to help help out here, and we can do it together. It's going to be a challenging season. Our, of the two water systems, the Ayahalava system, like I mentioned, 50% of the supply capacity is, is not there. Uh, it's offline. Uh, that's the system out of the two of the Honolulu and the Aya uh, Halava system. Aya Halava is the one in more dire situation. Uh, so that's the one we're looking very closely, uh, especially if the dry weather continues and uh, we get really a, a really hot and dry summer and water demand starts to get beyond our capacity to uh, supply the needs of our community. 
So that system might be something that uh, the bo uh, water board might be considering in the near future, uh, some mandatory restrictions potentially. Uh, but but at this time we haven't uh, haven't actually uh, made that decision yet. Uh, but we're looking very closely uh, because our three wells are shut down. We're pumping other wells harder to make up the loss in supply. Uh, and we're watching closely is what's happening with the underground aquifer. Is it starting to get saltier? Is the water starting to get saltier? We had that experience at Baratania Wells here, uh, at Baratania Street, uh, right across the uh, uh, Honolulu, uh, Honolulu Hale area next to Queens Hospital. Uh, we saw a rapid rise in the saltiness of the water as measured as chlorides, and we had to reduce our pumping by half. So we're kind of monitoring that. Ernie, I wanted to talk to you about the, the Red Hill tank situation. Uh, the Navy, of course, has said it will defuel the Red Hill tanks, but hasn't given a timeline. The issue now is how can it be done safely? Uh, how concerned are you about the possibility that a mistake in the defueling process could uh, release more fuel into the aquifer, which, uh, of course, lies just below those tanks? Can it be done safely? Uh, you know, that that's a, a big question. I, I think the uh, we do not have the option. Uh, those fuel tanks uh, that are, are right over our drinking water aquifer and containing maybe 180 million gallons of diesel and jet fuel, they need to be emptied out. Uh, they need to be done safely. Uh, there is a concern, you know, of uh, what it will require to do it safely, and uh, do they have the uh, uh, the personnel to be able to affect that? Um, you know, they've had a number of leaks last year, and, and uh, I think the uh, Navy attributed some of those to human error. Uh, so you want to make sure that uh, the operators of the facility are, are doing a good job and uh, will safely defuel it. Right, and, and, and we'll be hearing more as that situation goes along. Another situation that uh, popped up recently, uh, the board sent out letters to developers telling them that the water crisis on Oahu could hold up new projects. And some of the developers, along with Mayor Rick Blangiardi, expressed alarm at that stance. Um, can you talk to us about your discussions with the mayor and the developers? What's your response to the pushback from some in the community on the possibility of a development moratorium? Uh, you know, the, uh, we just want to be upfront uh, that uh, that is something that we do not look forward to doing. You know, we have uh, uh, what, we're, what we're referring to is actually our letters that go out in response to early inquiries about the availability of water. We don't we don't give out advanced water commitments to uh, developers. Uh, and our latest response is, you know, because of the Red Hill situation, we're unable to determine the adequacy of the water system at this time. Uh, and we always say this, and this is uh, what we've always maintained, uh, that determination of availability water will be done at the time the project comes in for a building permit. Uh, at, at the time we get these questions, it's usually well in advance of that. Uh, so uh, we let always let them know it's always at the time of building permit. Um, we've had numerous discussions with the development community and large landowners. Uh, uh, I've kind of lost track of how many of uh, those discussions we've had to kind of brief them on the situation. Uh, I know that there's great concern, and we are concerned, too, uh, about the impact uh, on development and the development of affordable housing for our community. Uh, but we also want, their, want folks to understand, you know, this is a situation that we didn't ask, ask to be in, uh, but we have to try to do the best we can. And we've been speaking with Board of Water Supply Manager and Chief Engineer Ernie Lau.
This is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. For today's Backyard Quiz, we're revisiting a forgotten 40-year-old song about cannabis. Though illegal in the U.S. since 1937, several states have legalized marijuana use. It moved into our country's pop culture during the 1960s and 70s. Even President Obama admitted in his biographies to smoking a lot of weed as a teenager growing up in our islands. So it's no surprise music artists of the era celebrated it in their songs. Some of them enjoyed commercial success, like Brewer and Shipley's One Toke Over the Line and Rick James's Mary Jane. Here in the islands, the Makaha Sons of Niihau's classic tune Pakalolo is probably the most well-known. But one lost over time was written in 1977 by the ambassador of Aloha, Don Ho, and details the plight of a cannabis grower. So for today's Backyard Quiz, do you know the name of that song? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets our reusable tote bag that tells people... You got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to strengthening family relationships, such as parents and children together. NareedHawaii.com. The city and county of Honolulu butts heads with the Howard Hughes Corporation over the proposed plan to run the rail transit line through Kaka'ako. That's the subject of today's Reality Check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Marcel Honoré joins us on the line today. Good morning. Morning, Scott. Good to be here. Marcel, your story today highlights the contentious negotiations that have been ongoing between the two sides over an eminent domain dispute. What's the latest on that? Yeah, so the story today is uh, kind of the latest in our uh, Banking on Rail series that we recently rolled out. Um, This is a series that looks at some of the landowners, big property owners along the future rail line and basically who's profiting from what's been happening so far. And so today does focus on the condemnation lawsuit, long-standing, long-running between Howard Hughes and the city. They've been in court now for nearly four years. They've deposed upwards of 80 people. Both sides combined have filed about 20 pre-trial motions. Uh, so it's been very messy. And this all amounts to what could be as much as $220 million in damages. That's according to the court records. If Howard Hughes were to uh, rule, you know, uh, uh, win outright in court. However, the judge late last year in this, this, um, this case, the state court judge, did issue some key decisions on some of those pre-trial motions 
mostly in favor of the city, it looks like. And uh, those those rulings could dismiss around $100 million of those Howard Hughes claims. So perhaps to be expected, Howard Hughes is currently looking to appeal those decisions. And this could make its way all the way to the Hawaii State Supreme Court, according to the judge. He's just saying there's there's so much at play here. Um, everybody has argued um, a ton of, of motions and brought all these briefings uh, forward. But even with all that's been been um, play, playing out in court over the last several years, there's still not enough case law and statutes. And, and this could make it all the way up to the highest court if the two sides are not able to reach a settlement. And from what I gather in my reporting over the last couple of weeks, they are nowhere near a settlement at this point. Right. And and to the surprise of some, after uh, being absolutely adamant about the line going all the way to Ala Moana, the city announced that it would ask the Federal Transit Administration, which is providing over $700 million for the project, for permission to end the rail line for now at the Civic Center, which is short of the Howard Hughes properties. Uh, Was this a response to the trouble they've had negotiating with the developer? Right. So so this case has been flagged as probably the biggest real estate risk by far for uh, for the rail project. It's enormously expensive. Uh, um, they've spent upwards of $23 million, or they will spend as much as $23 million in this, uh, in this case. The city will. Uh, however, the, the rail budget, the deficit that they're looking at is well over a billion dollars. Uh, they're short of about a billion dollars that they would need to complete the line all the way to Ala Moana Center. And a lot of that actually has to do with what's happening west of Kaka'ako um, along Dillingham with all the utility relocation snafus and and the failure to get a, a contract moving there. Uh, so I would say that's really more the primary reason, although this certainly doesn't help. Right. Now, Marcel, it would seem counterintuitive in a way for the city and Howard Hughes to be at odds. I mean, after all, both have a vested interest in running the rail line through to Ala Moana. Do you think that there is still room for compromise at this late stage? From my reporting recently, there there seems to be very little room. I mean, I asked the city of whether... Uh, they've pursued in any way a joint operating agreement, joint developing agreement, some way to really uh, allow for these two things to mesh together. And when I asked that, Lori Kahikina, who's the, the head of Heart, came back with a statement that stresses that it's really Howard Hughes' obligation to address and to incorporate their developments into what Hart is doing based on all the, the permit applications that they did to move forward with uh, Ward Village and all of their development. So that's a way of saying it It really doesn't look like there's room for for compromise here. Well, I'm sure we'll be uh, seeing a lot more on this issue as it it moves forward and as the rail project as a whole moves forward. Great reporting, Marcel. Thank you so much uh, for being with us. Thanks so much, Scott. That was reporter Marcel Honoré with today's Reality Check. To read his stories on this issue, visit civilbeat.org.
Support for HPR comes from Waikoloa Beach Resort, located on Hawaii Island, celebrating the art of laymaking in Hawaii with its inaugural Lay Day Festival on Sunday, May 1st, featuring a craft fair and workshops. WaikoloaBeachResort.com. I'm Bert Lom. Today on Bite Marks FA, we catch up with the design thinking organizers and find out how the program has evolved. In its 11th year, we'll find out how organizations like the Department of Education have used it and what innovations were implemented as a result of the process. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. University of Hawaii at Manoa student Mana Shim received national recognition recently. The Richardson Law School student was chosen from about 200 students nationwide as one of National Jurist Magazine's 2022 Law Students of the Year. The honor recognizes talented, exceptional law students with a dedication to their community. Shim is in the third year of her studies and is a retired professional soccer player committed to activism, mental health, and public service. She sat down in our studio with The Conversation's Russell Subiono to talk about how her native Hawaiian ancestry frames her passion for public service and advocacy for mental health. Have you always wanted to practice law? I didn't. I I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do after soccer. Mm-hmm. And I had an auntie who wrote the Native Hawaiian Law Treatise, and she was a professor at UH. And after I read some of that, I felt like it was just a calling and the, the right path for me. So I signed up, and I, only, I actually only applied to UH. I didn't have any interest in going to another law school because I looked at the professors and saw just how diverse it was. And it's a different law school. It's not like, I mean, they definitely teach bar courses and it's ABA accredited, but it's it's different. I've taken lots of different classes in Native Hawaiian law, Pacific Island legal systems, critical race theory. I've read about your commitment to activism. You impacted the National Women's Soccer League. You've impressed the public defender's office with your work ethic and compassion for clients. Where does your passion for standing up for others come from? It definitely comes from my family. I have a big family, and we're all over the map. (laughs) We didn't grow up with much, and some people did. And I think just growing up here in Hawaii and connecting with people, because being a a lawyer, at least from what I've seen and the work I do, it it doesn't feel like work because it's really just talking to people, Mm -hmm. hearing their stories and helping them tell their stories and seeking justice, whatever that means in the in the context. Yeah, it's from relationships with people. And here it's easy. My family's taught me to be open and to encourage other people to, to be themselves. And they encourage me to be myself. Through that, you have authentic conversations. And that's where it all begins. And I think where it ends, too. Are, are there other attorneys in your family? Yeah. So my grandfather was a an attorney. He was a union labor guy. He actually won a, was one of the founders of Alulike. Oh, okay. Yeah, and then my uncle on my grandma's side was is a retired judge, Walter Heen. So my Heen family is it was in Oha, and we had a judge. I'm kind of embarrassed because I'm sure we have more family. But <laughs> and my mom grew up working for a big criminal defense attorney here, Brooke Hart. 
So I grew up in his office. Yeah. He was a private attorney, but she was a, a legal secretary. So I kind of grew up in it. My first summer job in high school was through Alulike. So thanks. Oh, wow. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> thanks yeah. to your family. <laughs> I'm also aware of your mental health community outreach. And it seems like only in recent years that a greater emphasis has been placed on protecting our mental health and addressing issues that we encounter. Do you think that more needs to be done to address mental health needs in our community? Yes, absolutely. It's one of the things I'm most passionate about. There's mental illness that runs in my family. My sister and I are both diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And it's, I think, something that that we are exploring and always working through is that intersection of mental illness and Hawaiian culture, you know, and the way that it's perceived from a very Western medical standpoint and how we can approach it from more of a, an indigenous perspective. And it's not easy. You know, we're all of us, all of, I mean, we're living in a, in a colonized place, you know, and it's, um, it's complicated and super complex, but trying to navigate that and how we can heal each other in our community. And obviously we have a lot of ehar are hurt from that, from colonization and just the, the different things that our people suffer from. But mental illness is definitely something that we don't address enough as a community and a culture. And I found that when I was up in on the continent, when I was playing soccer in different states and internationally, to be honest, I was in Japan and Sweden, and it just isn't talked about as much as I think it, it could be and should be. And I'm I'm glad, especially in the sports industry, athletes are starting to talk about it more because it is, you know, it's kind of like the anxiety and it's something that helps us be our best and is also the hardest to deal with behind closed doors. And I think because of that, it's it set me apart in some ways as far as my drive and my commitment to things because I am super passionate. But at the same time, the the highs are really high and the lows are really low. Yeah, yeah and I don't think we, we talk about that enough. I know that my family has some history of, of mental illness. I've seen, I think on my great-grandma's death certificate that she had passed because of uh, schizophrenia. Do you have an idea of what an indigenous approach to mental health would look like? Well, I would start with saying there are certain things that we see today, right? Like there's psychosis and mania and schizophrenia, like just the way that manifests. And I think the difference that we don't often recognize is the way in Hawaiian culture that was seen. And it was kind of like people, the people in our community who can travel through the realms, you know, mm-hmm. the spiritual realms and or are actually really special and celebrated and acknowledged to be be unique in a, in a positive way. And I think we see it as always a negative, but I do think there are things that are beneficial that those community members can bring to help us understand who we are, what we are, and really appreciate life in a different way. But I think as far as treating mental illness, so yeah, the the perspective is the first thing, right? Like seeing just the way we approach it and the way we see mental illness. And then as far as treating it, I think a lot of people aren't comfortable taking Western medicine, you know, prescription yeah. drugs. And we see that a lot in our community. And I don't 
I wouldn't push anyone either way, but I I definitely have chosen the path of taking prescription medication for my illness. And I think, well, oftentimes our doctors push that, right? Like yeah. it's it's the easiest way to to have a normal life. And I think if we talked about it more and we supported each other, we wouldn't necessarily have to do that for everyone. And essentially what that medication is doing is trying to make you more normal, you know? So your highs aren't as high and your lows aren't as low and you stop seeing things or whatever it is. But I do think if we made space for that and we could see the beauty in it and also what that what contributions you can get from that, it would really change. How does your Hawaiian heritage influence your outlook on practicing law and representing future clients? Well, that gives me chicken skin. As a people, I feel like we suffer more than we need to mm-hmm. and more than a lot of a lot of people and other cultures do. And I, I just, going back to the last question, I think about that we suffer more and we also have the best medicine living here. You know, it's yeah. such a gift to be here and to have, just be on the Aina where people are from and have the ocean to go to and it can be really healing. So that just comes to mind every time I think about how difficult it can be for our people. But I definitely like my Hawaii, like where I come from and my genealogy is what carries me through everything, not just this chapter of my life of going into law. It's it's the thing that I identify with the most. And because of that, it's, it's driving what I'm choosing to do like I'm to be honest I'm floating through all of these different spaces of like you know I'm really passionate about addressing all of the sex assault things that are happening in in sports and kind of these coaches that are going unchecked and then at the other side I'm here doing Native Hawaiian Rights Clinic with Kapua Sprout and and Melody McKenzie who's my auntie she's she helps guide us but Kahuliawit Richardson is the Native Hawaiian Law Center, and it's the only law center that we have. So they work really hard in the community and have clients that otherwise wouldn't have, just don't have access to legal services. And really, it's like we go out there. So right now we're working on some water cases. They just We just watched the Supreme Court oral arguments at Richardson a couple of days ago about the Kauai case. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about, you know, development and expanding pipes and everyone is different. A lot of them are environmental concerns, but we're working right now in our clinic on getting water designation for farmers on Maui. To me, that's the kind of stuff that I would like to do that I think is more important than any other work that I could imagine doing. But it is, it's just one, one piece of, of addressing how we can support our community as a whole. And I'm I'm grateful that I was able to get an education and I mean, I don't think it's (laughs) one is better than the other, you know, but just because I had soccer, truly soccer put me through school and I got a very specific tailored Western education that allows me to now, you know, somewhat understand. (laughs) I'm not a lawyer yet, but um, yeah, it's one way to serve the community and I think and serve the Lahui and I, I think um, at least I'm hopeful that I can do that well and represent Native Hawaiian clients. And also working in the public defender's office, we had a lot of OEV 
clients and some on small charges and others like we you know we we had the Kahuku windmill cases mm-hmm. when I got there and those got dismissed but it's things like that that pop up in the community and people need services so I hope I can continue to do that that's my plan for the future my long game I guess <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Mana, and good luck to you in everything that you do in the future. Thank you so much. You all are wonderful. And that was UH Manoa Law student Mana Shim talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. Shim was among the law students recently named by National Jurist Magazine as 2022 Law Students of the Year. Support for HPR comes from Chamber Music Hawaii, celebrating 40 years, presenting its next concert, Sacred and Profane, with the Honolulu Brass Quintet, April 25th at St. John Lutheran Church in Kailua, chambermusichawaii.org. The news and music you hear on HPR are supported in part by nearly 200 local organizations that choose to reinforce their brand with us. Mahalo to Hotel Magic, Renewable Energy Services, and Vivia. They believe, just as you do, in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting a site-specific installation by social practice artist Theaster Gates as part of Hawaii Triennial 2022. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We now go to University of Hawaii Hilo professor Patrick Hart, who introduces us to a crimson honeycreeper in this week's Manu Minute. The Apapane is a direct descendant of a flock of finches that somehow flew from Asia over nearly 3,000 miles of open ocean and landed in the Hawaiian Islands more than 5 million years ago. It's one of over 55 species of birds, now known as the Hawaiian honeycreepers, that evolved from that original group. And nowadays, it's the only one left whose song can still be commonly heard on all the main Hawaiian islands, especially if you're in a forest where the ohia lehua are blooming as their curved bills and brush-like tongues are perfectly adapted to forage on the nectar of these flowers. Even though apapane are a brilliant bright red in color, they are often more easily detected by their beautiful song, which has recently been found to vary between the islands and even between different forest patches or kipuka on the same island. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Department of Biology at the University of Hawaii at Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Waiakea Hawaiian Volcanic Water, offering alkaline water sourced from the Keaau Aquifer on the Big Island. Learn more about subscriptions at waiakea.com.
Today's backyard quiz dusts off a forgotten track by a celebrated local musician about the woes of growing cannabis. If you ask locals over 50 years old what's the most popular song about marijuana, they might recite to you, If you're ever down on the leeward side, Pakalolo will tickle your feet, a line from the Makaha Sons of Niihau song, Pakalolo. But the song we're talking about was recorded and self-released by Don Ho in 1977 and became a surprise hit. The lyrics tell the story of a man who found some seeds and, not knowing what they were, threw them out the window, only to find out six months later they grew into marijuana plants. A few days later, he finds nearly half of them were stolen, and the next morning he receives a visit from the police. We won't spoil the ending for you, but if you want to know what happens, just Google, Who is the Lolo who stole my Pakalolo? Which is the answer to today's quiz. And we have a winner to today's quiz, John from Waikiki. John had a uh, good laugh when he discovered the song on YouTube. Thanks to all who have called with the answer to the backyard quiz. If you'd like, if you have one you'd like to share, write to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And keeping with our theme of flora, you may have heard the saying, April showers bring May flowers, and historians have traced the phrase back to a 1610 poem, which contained the lines, Sweet April showers do spring May flowers. For gardeners, April is the kickoff to the spring growing season, a time for planted seeds to sprout out of the ground and thrive in the increased rain and sunlight. In celebration of National Gardening Month, Producer Lillian Song visited a couple of community gardens and collected some of the folksy wisdom shared by people who thrive on getting their hands in the dirt. We start off in Hawaii Kai with Christy. Plants want to live. They don't commit suicide. Give them half a chance and they'll do it. But you're going to lose a few here and there. Don't be discouraged. Keep going. You know, God is abundant. The seeds are abundant. Everything you do will grow four times more, maybe, I don't know, ten times more than you actually needed. Just you have to be intrepid and not be sad when things go wrong. Got to just do it again. My name is Kiyomi, and we've been here for six years. Why do I garden? It's interesting. Always something to learn, something new. It's rewarding. And then also community aspect of it. All these people come here because they somehow, you know, they are interested in gardening or maybe wanted to try. Like, I wasn't a knowledgeable gardener at all, but I think I've always liked to touch dirt and grow things. I have been unsuccessful for all these years, but I wanted to continue to try and then found this community garden. And I started learning from more experienced gardeners all gardeners observe what's happening in your plot. Then you start to formulate your own theory of what works, what doesn't work. So it's just a continuing learning experience. Melvin Waterai, and I've been gardening for about three years at this garden plot, yes. And I truly, truly enjoy gardening. There's a lot of frustration in this world right now. It's a big relief coming here. I can think, relax, and it's beautiful here. And then also I need to exercise. (laughs) 
And the key right now is for me to exercise, and this is giving me that. I really enjoy that, yes. I'm Audrey Jewell. I've been gardening since 2009, always here at Hawaii Kai. I've got mostly flowers here, blue days, alyssium. This is verbena that sort of grew out of a mixed bag of seeds. I have lemongrass here, green onion. A gardener just shared with me her excess cucumber seedlings, so I planted those. Gerbera daisy. This is my peas slowly coming back after I pulled them out the old one. We have a crown flower at the end there with some more flowers at the end. Carnation, actually, and roses, some strawberries. And in the middle here is asparagus. I like the peas because it's almost instant gratification. <laughs> you don't have to wait too long. Unlike the asparagus, uh, you got to wait three years before you really start getting anything out of the plant. But it was a worthwhile investment. I, I enjoyed waiting for it. Your sisters garden with you, so this is a wonderful family experience for you guys. Yes, absolutely. My name is Carrie, and I've been gardening since 2009. Why do you garden? What was the draw for you to become a community gardener? It was just the relaxation of being in the fresh air, outdoors, getting to spend time with family, and just a relaxation time. It's like my spa. So... I really enjoy it. I didn't know that I would be a member this long, but I haven't grown tired of it. I look forward to it every single weekend. We garden twice a week, every Saturday, every Sunday, and it's never the same. It's always different, but it's very relaxing. There are 10 official community gardens in the city and county of Honolulu's Community Recreational Gardening Program. The Makiki Garden was the first, established in 1975 to provide people living in Honolulu's densely populated areas access to plots. Here's the garden's president, Joshua Winter. Start off small and just don't get discouraged. More plants die than live when you first start gardening, and a lot of times that discourages gardeners, but... Get to know your space, where you're gardening, whether it be your lanai, whether it be your front yard, whether it be a garden like a community garden. Get to know your space. um, Try a variety at first. Kind of identify what works best and then kind of nurture what works best and kind of enhance that. My name is Antonina. I've been gardening for 10 years, but at this garden only a year. It's a very small space, so my idea is to have a vertical garden and also use like a sweet potato, especially Okinawa, because my son's an athlete, so it's very good for sports, you know, for athletes. And it's vine, so I can, you know, grow up. Also, we grow noni, which is traditional Hawaiian medicinal plant. And uh, I have a couple of other medicinal plants. We have international gardeners here and everybody from Thailand, India or Ukraine like me and South America, everybody bring their own little culture and we learn from each other and then we continue, you know, because gardening is a miracle. You take a little seed and the whole life, it's not just about plants. Women in the past were the gardeners, they were healers and I wish more ladies uh, get to that uh, habit of even if it's a small box, you know It's your own box, you know, grow something, (laughs) grow basil for your tomatoes or, I don't know, anything. It's so easy. It's not as complicated. It's all about love and sharing. 
Love and sharing the knowledge of growing native Hawaiian plants is what Mike DeMotta, curator of living collections at the National Tropical Botanical Garden, has been doing for the past 15 years. The conversation's Lillian Song sat down with him to talk gardening and tips for planting native species. Let's tap into your wisdom as you have been working with native plants. This is your wheelhouse. Somebody who is just starting to garden, who would really like to invest in native plants. Give me a couple of examples of what is a friendly species or something that would be harder to uh, to kill. Yeah, I like to call them bulletproof plants. You, um, yeah. you know, there's a couple of shrubs and small trees that grow in most lowland ecosystems. Uh, one of them, of course, is naupaka. Naupaka is a very common coastal shrub. It grows along the most beaches. It's very drought tolerant. It's salt tolerant, and it doesn't usually have many problems with insect pests. So if you wanted a small shrub or even a hedge, naupaka is a really good choice for that. If you're living in a hot, dry, you know, it can be a fairly wet part of the island as well, but it can withstand hot and dry. And one of my favorite trees, tall, big shrubs, is something called alahe'e. Alahe'e is in the same family as coffee and gardenia, so it does produce very fragrant white flowers. It's a very hardy hardwood. The ancient Hawaiians used to use alahe'e trunks, the tree itself, for digging sticks. That's how hard the wood is. And it gets to be a pretty good-sized shrub if it's in a protected, well-irrigated spot. But I planted it here at the garden here on Kauai and used it as a hedge. So it's not a trimmed hedge. It's, it's just a line of alahe'e that is a really good windbreak that is very drought-tolerant and produces very fragrant flowers a couple of times out of the year. So, you know, depending on where the person is living, do a little bit of homework. You know, we're so lucky now that you can find all this on the Internet. If you want to use native plants, just look on the Internet. There are a lot of websites that talk about native plants and what their tolerances are. Not a lot of native plants have very showy flowers. There are some native hibiscus, though, which I always recommend folks planting. There's a native white hibiscus found on each of the Hawaiian islands that's native to each of the islands. And one of the pleasant things about them is that they're very fragrant. They're also pretty low maintenance. Oahu has a native species from the koalaus that's pretty low maintenance and quite fragrant. And uh, it can be pruned and kept as a, you know, a little shrub. And it's a really wonderful addition. And when it flowers, it flowers profusely. So it is one of the better examples. It's pretty charismatic as uh, native plants go, and it would makes a great addition to, to most landscapes. Mm-hmm. And I understand that you are launching an awareness campaign. Tell me more about Meet the Plants. So we are really reaching out, and, you know, gardening has become really, really popular. And we don't normally do plant sales. We did a plant sale February of last year, and it was really, it was a sellout. Everybody just was really interested in growing their own stuff. And so the whole awareness of of gardening and and native plants is more heightened now than it's probably ever been. And so I'm really pleased to see that. And we have reasons why people should grow native plants in their own landscapes. And it's a thing. This is something that's been kind of discussed across the United States is more people plant native plants in their yards. You help to preserve germplasm. You help to preserve species for future conservation, possibly. You also help to create a patchwork of native habitat you know, we think about native birds like honeycreepers and whatnot, but there's a lot of native insects uh, in the environment that need support as well. We grow native plants in our backyards. We provide habitat for native insects, like possibly the yellow-faced bee, which is an important pollinator. And many of the native moths that we are not really entirely familiar with will find a happy home in someone's backyard when they've got a lot of native plants. You know, the biggest concern that's been ongoing for the last several years is the rapid ohia death. 
most, if not all, the halal that have participated in Mary Marduk since rapid ohia death became a thing have avoided going into the forest to harvest ohia, likolehua, and so forth mm. to use in their lays. It's a good, and I've been a proponent of this for a very long time, for hula halal to grow as much of their own plant material as possible. Palapalai ferns are very important in, in hula, and anybody can grow palapalai. Miley is important. Anybody can grow Miley virtually anywhere on any island. Ohia, Lehua, I mean, I live on a dry part here on Kauai, and I have several Ohia, Lehua trees in my yard, as dry and windy as it is in my house. So, again, you start off with the foundation, which is the soil. Make your soil happy, make it organic, make it really rich, and you can grow any native plant in your yard. So the whole gardening thing and using native plants in your own landscape is something that we're really advocating for right now. Hmm. Give us a sense of scale where you work. So I'm a home gardener, and so it's just my backyard. But for you, what's the what's the scale of the space that you are able to plant and grow and observe what's happening? Sure, that's a good question, and it's important to be able to to look at everything from the big picture as well as to drill down onto the micro level. So McBride Garden, which is one of our gardens on the south shore of Kauai, is about 200 acres. The native section, to drill it down a little bit, is probably six acres of that. And then within the native section, there are small areas where some of our rarest plants are grown. So the valley, Lawai Valley, was part of McBride Sugar Company many years ago. And so in order to successfully grow native plants, we had to start with the soil. The soil had been used for sugarcane for so long, so we had to breathe new life into the soil. And by, in order to do that, we had to use a lot of organic matter. You know, I spent, in the years I was here, spent a lot of time getting compost tilled into the ground before we even did our first plantings of rare, of rare plants. And so even though we deal on a large scale, every garden, every collection is a micro garden in and of itself. And it's more than just collecting, you know, a few individuals from a particular species. It's recreating the habitat with associated species. So you don't want to just plant, you know, five or six of the same species in in a collection. You want them to be growing with other plants that are from that area that grow as associated species in that forest type. So you want to recreate the habitat. And plants, they're living organisms. It's not like a museum collection. They're alive, and you have to cater to what they need. And what they do need is to be in a community of other plants. And so we view each collection, for example, again, of native Hawaiian plants, and if it's a rare taxa, a rare species, we, we recreate habitat with other co- more common species to plant along with it as companion plantings. And it all starts with the soil composting, adding organic matter, adding microbial, the ability for microbes to thrive because that symbiosis between soil microbes and the plants is really, really important for the success of the planting. And, and, and you know, if anybody's coming to Kauai, you know, come and visit our gardens because, you know, you can take the self-guided tour and walk yourself through the native section and, and just see what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. There are gardens on Oahu that have native plant collections that people can go and visit as well. You know, Cocoa Head Botanical Garden has a nice native section. Lilio Kalani Garden along the Nu'uanu stream has a small native plant section as well. So be the plant. Know what, understand what the plant You know, I, I learned how to do this. I mean, I've always had the interest in it when I used to dance hula, but I spent countless hours hiking into the mountains and just sitting in the forest, smelling what it smells like and looking at the soil and feeling the, the soil and what's the leaf litter composition, what, what leaves are on the ground and what are they doing, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I try to commune with the forest because 
the success of what we do here is important. And so, you know, I have to as much as possible be successful more than not, right? You know, the survival of species depends on it. So I've spent a lot of time just sort of teaching myself how all this works. That was the National Tropical Botanical Gardens curator of living collections, Mike DeMata, talking with HPR's Lillian Song. Nearly one-third of Hawaiian flora is on the U.S. endangered species list, and more than 230 species have fewer than 50 individuals remaining in the wild. Now through May 31st, NTBG is running an awareness campaign to meet the plants that live in our yards, mountains, and along our streams and coastlines. We'll share links on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. And that brings to a close our show for this Wednesday, April 30th. But up tomorrow, we look at what the Navy is doing to conserve water in the wake of fuel contamination from Red Hill. Got a story you'd like to share? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Want to listen back to something you heard? Find our archive shows online. I'm Scott Kim. Catherine Cruz will be back with you tomorrow for more of The Conversation. <laughs> 